Now we are beginning a new series uh, this week and it is from the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be looking at the seven churches in Revelation. So if you have your Bible this morning, uh, please turn with me. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 here in, in just a few moments. Now I, I am, as you remember, a transitional interim pastor, which means that I, I come with intent. I'm very much intentional in what I'm preaching to you and, and the things that I'm hoping to work with through you with the different meetings that we're having. All of these are for a purpose. It's just not to have another meeting. It's not just to get together and eat, although I could do that any time of the day. Uh, but these are intentional meetings. They're intended for us to look uh, at our present situation, uh, look at our past situation, and then uh, set a course for the future. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these seven churches. I would invite you on your own to read uh, uh, read them uh, from Scripture. If you have other uh, books or commentaries that you can read in conjunction with them, feel free uh, to do so, and maybe you can give me some pointers in that because I haven't read every book on the seven churches. But in this transitional period here at Panther Creek, it's a great opportunity for us to use these churches uh, to compare ourselves to they're in the Bible for a reason. And uh, we can compare ourselves to these churches. We can reflect upon these churches. And we can draw some conclusion from these churches. Uh, they were each a little bit different. Uh, and then as we do that, we can focus on our future. A whole part of looking at the Bible is seeing what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And uh, so that will help us in the future. Now, these seven churches that are uh, revealed to us here in the book of Revelation are seven literal churches. These churches existed. Now, if you were back around uh, A.D. 90 and you were traveling through Asia Minor, which is in the west of the country that we know today as Turkey, and you were traveling in that area, you would uh, run across these churches. They would be functioning churches, and you could worship with them on a Sunday morning. They are literal churches. Now, uh, the, the speaker uh, from the Scripture, the Lord Jesus, who speaks to these churches, uh, the significance is that He is speaking to them about their current situation. So the very first purpose of having these churches in the book of Revelation is that we are learning how Jesus is communicating with these literal churches and meeting their specific needs of the time. Now a second purpose of these churches is not just for them back in the day, but also that the situations that they went through are possible situations that are occurring in churches even today. Uh, throughout history we have seen that repeated, that is repeated in these churches, in other churches, and even today we can see the intent of God's instruction to these churches. 
Now, there's a possible third purpose to, in using these seven churches, and that is to, to show different periods of church history. For instance, the first church we're looking at today is the church of Ephesus. And so we might look at the uh, Ephesus age as that being from the time of the apostles to around 160 A.D., and so you would come down through history from the first church, and then the next church would be a period of history, till finally you got down to the Laodicean church, which is the last church. And, uh, and as some historians have placed it, beginning roughly around 1925 to the present. Now, you can make application of all of the things that I've talked about these churches, but the thing that we need to remember is that any of these churches to, could describe any church today at any time in a given situation. So our focus in studying these churches is this. What is God saying to Panther Creek Baptist Church? And what is God saying to me? What is God saying to Panther Creek Baptist Church? And what is God saying to me. So we're going to use what we learn to assess our, our, our past, our present, and our future plans. Keep this in mind uh, because at the end of the seven weeks, there's going to be a test. Okay, all right. Stand with me while we read from God's Word. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars." And you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So far, so good. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to be together today in this time of worship. We thank you for the good singing and the praise that's lifted to you, thanking you, Lord, remembering through the songs how that you gave your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, how that, Lord, you are to be extolled and lifted up and exalted above every other thing. And Lord, we do come today to give your name glory. And we are reminded, Lord, that we are flesh, and in that flesh there is sin. 
And so, God, I pray today that as we come before your throne, recognizing that we are sinners, that we will repent. And, Father, that we will find ourselves in a better fellowship with you. For those who are not saved here today, Lord, we pray for your convicting power, that you would draw them to the cross, that you would help them to realize and, and conviction, Lord, that they need Jesus as their Savior, and that without him, they can have no life. Without Him, they are bound in sin. Without Him, there is no freedom to live in this life, nor will there be a heaven to go to. So, Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit will work and move in that way. Lord, we are concerned about the church, the church as a whole in our world, and we are especially concerned about Panther Creek Baptist Church because, Lord, that's where we are now. And these people are here to love you and to worship you and to seek your will. And so, God, we pray for the outpouring of your Spirit with knowledge and discernment and wisdom uh, to help us, Lord, see ourselves as you see us. And then, Lord, we would trust your guidance to the next step as we walk in maturity toward you. Let your Holy Spirit fall. Lord, let me say nothing that is not in your will and for your benefit today, and Lord, let your Spirit speak through me. In the times that we have spent together in study and prayer time, Lord, let now be revealed what you want these people to hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How many of you are familiar with the name Henry Blackaby? Anybody know Henry Blackaby? Perhaps you have went through his study course, Experiencing God. I would suggest if you haven't that perhaps some of you might want to do that study. He has a, a new revised study out now, and it's excellent. This is what we went through at the old Temple Baptist Church before we made our transitional move to Worthington Road, and I believe that that study course made all the difference in how our folks accepted uh, what God was doing in the life of Temple Baptist Church. And so I think it would be very helpful. In, in, in that experience in God, he, he reveals to us uh, seven realities. And so I want, I want to use one of those realities today, and I may later preach on this uh, at some point in time. But uh, I think this particular reality goes along with what we are looking at today in, uh, in this church. So in, in, his, uh, in his study of that same name, Experiencing God, this is a principle that he gives. Uh, God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. Now, a lot of times it seems, and, and I don't mean to be putting everything in one big bowl, but a lot of times it seems that whenever we get saved, we just kind of think, well, that's all there is to it, and, and it just ends there with that salvation experience. We know God loves us, we know He sent Jesus to die for our sins, but we kind of get satisfied in that. But God never stops loving us, and God does not want us to stop loving Him. And so He is pursuing in a continuing love relationship with us something that He wants to be very real and very personal. Now, this is vital to any believer, and it's vital to the church family as a whole. Because just at any time in the life of the church when 
one member is not in good standing with the Lord, then that reflects upon the whole membership. Perhaps you've heard it said that a chain is only as strong as its weakest length. So a healthy relationship with God through the individuals and membership of the church brings a healthy relationship in the church as a whole. Out of that, what we're seeing is that God wants us to have a consuming passion for Him. God wants us to have a consuming passion for Him. The disciples uh, in, in John chapter 2, 17 remembered a prophecy from Scripture. Zeal for God's house has consumed me. And that came right after that Jesus had cleared the temple of the money changers uh, that were there making a mockery out of the temple. Zeal for God's house has consumed me. Passion for God's house burns within me. Now, Jesus here is not talking about passion for a building. He's talking about God's house and God's building, which is actually people. We read that in Corinthians. You are a building. You are a body. You are the people of God. So, Jesus is speaking about this passionate love for God and His presence in my life and His presence in your life. He wants to have this passionate relationship. Let me ask you the question, do you have passion or zeal in your life? Do you have a zeal for something? Do you have a passion for something? Now the dictionary defines that as an intense emotion, a strong feeling, a great devotion, an intense conviction which fuels or motivates us toward a compelling action. So if we have a, a passion, that passion compels us to do something. And more likely it's going to be something that we really like. If you have a passion for something, you love doing it. It is not a drudgery. It is not a burden. For instance, Mark is the best student in class because he has a passion for learning. What is your passion? You may have more than one passion, but what is your main passion? Passion, you see, is the difference, is the difference between enthusiastic action and simply going through the motions. Now, does that ring a bell with you anywhere? The difference between enthusiastic action and going through the motion. So the Bible uses this word zeal, a fervent devotion to a cause. It is also closely related to the word fire. So I like, I like this next statement. Passion is the fire in your belly that motivates you to do what you love doing. Have you got a fire in your belly? I'm not talking about the tacos you ate last night. Have you got a fire in your belly? Uh, Paul visited this church at Ephesus on his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, Paul spent three years there. And Paul wrote a letter, and we have it in our Bible, a letter that he wrote to the Ephesians. God greatly blessed his ministry there. Ephesus was a wonderful church. These believers were in love with Jesus at the time of Paul. And they showed their faith. They, sin became intolerable. 
I mean, they had books on the occult and things of that nature, and they had a book burning. They brought things out of their homes, and they had a big bonfire, and they burned all those occultic books. They separated themselves from the wickedness of the city, which was a very wicked city. And they made a great impact on the city that they were in because of their of the fire that was in their belly and their passion for God and the things of God. Look at this next statement. Authentic, genuine, passionate love for Jesus produces a fundamental, separated, serving church membership. A lot of words in that sentence. Authentic, genuine, passionate love for Jesus produces fundamental, separated, serving church membership. Now, since Paul was in Ephesus, 30 years have passed, and now John's writing Revelation. So Paul was in Ephesus about A.D. 60, and now John is writing Revelation in A.D. 90. And as he writes it, and as he, as he writes down what he is hearing from, from Jesus, who is talking to uh, the messenger, the angel, uh, the, the, the preacher of the church, as he is talking to him, he is telling him about the church. And he's pretty much giving an overall view of the church 30 years after Paul has been there. Right now, Ephesus needs a revival. Revelation tells us, as Jesus speaks here, he says, I, I, I commend you on your works and your labor and your patience and their perseverance and their intolerance of false apostles. They were still doing the same things. They were doing right things that they were doing 30 years ago. They still had a fundamental separated serving church membership, but it was a different kind of doing it than they were 30 years prior to that. Go back 30 years in your life. Maybe go back more than that. Go back 30 years in the church's life. Or maybe go back more than that. Some of you can. They had sound doctrine. But they had a defective love. They were right in their separation, but they were wrong in their devotion. The church was still serving, but his love had grown cold. Thirty years had passed, and the love had grown cold. She needed her passion restored. They had left, the Bible says, their first love. In other words, they no longer loved Jesus like they used to love Jesus. And Paul gave them a warning in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 30 about this very thing. It is so ironic in a way, but it is so godly in another way. He said to them as he closed his letter to them in Ephesians 6.30, he said, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. You see, there's a difference in saying I love Jesus and being passionate about Jesus. There's a difference in saying, I love Jesus, and being sincere in your love. Any one of them in Ephesians church would have probably told you that they love Jesus. I see they would say, after all, look at our works. Look at our mission giving. Look at how we're, uh, uh, how we're not tolerating any false doctrine. Just look at us. You know we love Jesus. Just look at our works. They were following the protocol of church but they had lost their passionate love for Jesus. 
So Jesus basically asked them, why don't you love me like you used to do? Why don't you love me like you used to do? Now, before there was a Hank Williams Jr., are you with me? There was a Hank Williams Sr., and, and he made possible a song we like to sing in church a lot, I Saw the Light. I, well, he had another song, and it was called, Why Don't You Love Me Like You Used to Do? Why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue, but why don't you love me like you used to do? Well, he's talking to his girl, right? He's talking to his girlfriend and wondering why don't she love him. He hasn't changed. Why don't she love him like she used to love him? And Jesus could say that very same thing to many churches today. Jesus could say, I haven't changed. Why don't you love me like you used to love me? Could that be said of you as a believer today? Could that be said of Panther Creek Baptist Church? According to Scripture, our very reason to exist is to love God, to worship and glorify Him. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love your Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And so our, our relationship and interaction with the Lord must be more than a worn out ritual. It must be more than following rules and regulations. It must be more than just doing the protocol of the church because sooner or later you're going to get tired of doing the protocol if you don't have some fire in your belly that makes you want to do it. And it just becomes old. And we hear that word burn out. Well, really you are burnt out. The fire of your passion, the fire in your belly for Jesus has burned out. And you don't love Him like you used to, because if you loved Him like you used to, you would do what needs to be done, not out of duty, but out of love and out of joy. Indeed, it should be a life-giving relationship that flows from the heart. Jesus is saying to the church, I want you to be sold out, fully devoted and passionate about me. So the question is, why don't you love me like you used to do? And the next question would be, is there someone or somebody else? If you're not loving that person, then there must be someone else. Boy, Americans are, we really are passionate people. We're passionate about sports and we're passionate about politics. We're passionate about movies and about, about foods. We're passionate about fashions, and we're passionate about clothes. We're passionate about travel. I mean, people, listen, you see them. Maybe you're one of them. You live and work to fulfill your passion. You work hard all week so that you can have that particular car, or you can have that particular boat, or you can have that particular motorhome, or you can have that particular house to live in because you're passionate about those things. So you work hard in order to have those things. That is your passion. But oftentimes in the passion and not just having the things we need, we go above that to the things that we want and then we get into God's territory and pretty soon we're a passion about everything but the Lord. It was a beautiful wedding. The sanctuary was full of flowers. The singing was angelic, the ceremony most moving. 
The bride was adorned in beauty. The groom was handsome. The ceremony ended and they walked arm in arm into the parking lot where the limousine awaited. The bride threw her bouquet, got in the limousine, closed the door and rode away, leaving the groom in bewilderment. What do you think ran through that groom's mind? But you know the same thing happens every Sunday across America. We come to the church building, we go through the ceremony, we get in our cars and we leave. But not only are we leaving the building, many times we leave the groom. We are the bride of Christ. Our passion is to be for the groom. And surely Jesus is asking us, why don't you love me like you used to do? You see, love is a choice. We've chosen our passion for the worldly things over the passion of Jesus. And we do just enough with Jesus to get by, to maybe think we're fooling the world, but we're never fooling Jesus. And we've convinced ourselves that ceremony is enough. We've present, convinced ourselves that protocol of church is enough, that simply going through the motions of church is enough. Our true passion is obvious. Our true passion is ourself. And so we make our choice. And God would ask us this question, Did I not empower you to love me? Whenever we look at Romans 5, 5, the Bible says that God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He's given us. And the Holy Spirit gives us the capability to love God back. So we, it's not that we don't have the capability to love God. It's not that we don't have the capability to have passion and fire in our belly for God. But the problem really is we choose not to do that. So... Whenever we choose to love anything or anyone more than Jesus, we are committing idolatry. But I want to also submit that we are committing spiritual adultery. Because we have left our groom and we have gone out after someone else. So the Lord then may ask this question, why? so why did you stop loving me? Have I lost your respect? And, and then there's a troubling thought in our world today, this, this idea of, of respect, you know. I get no respect, Rodney Dangerfield, never got, any, never got any respect. But respect of God, this lack of reverential fear of God and, and awe of God. It's like that God has become a buddy. <laughs> and and I, I get that, what a friend we have in Jesus. But there also has to be this reverential fear of, of God, not that He's going to zap us with a lightning bolt, but just this, this reverence that we have for Him. Believers perform acts of debauchery both outside and inside the church walls. And, and no wonder the world is in the shape it's in when believers are in the shape that they're in, having lost respect and reverence for God. And where has that been transferred? It's been transferred everywhere else. We see that lack of respect in the home. We see it in the school. We wonder why things are so bad in schools. It's a lack of respect. Where does it go back to? Well, it can go back to the home, and it really ought to be transferred also, uh, traced also back to the, to the church. 
Because this, there has to be somewhere where people understand and learn that you are to have respect of God and respect of His creation and His highest creation is humanity. So the Lord commands us to love Him. Love is a command. But listen to this. If you don't respect the commander, you're not going to follow His commands. If you don't respect the commander, you won't follow His commands. Regardless even of the consequences. So, if Jesus is not my first love, if my passion is for someone or something else, if I no longer have reverence and respect to God, if my worship is only an empty ritual, I'm only going through the motions, then what should I do now? What should I do now? And what did Jesus say to the church after He told them that they had forsaken their first love, He went on to say the next word is remember. Remember. Remember how you used to love Me. Remember how you used to love Me. Let me remind us. Remember when you used to get up early and spend time with me in my word? Remember when you used to talk with me and share your thoughts and troubles? Remember when I would speak into your heart with compassion and comfort and wisdom and discernment? Remember when you couldn't wait to come to my house and worship with fellow believers? Remember the excitement of worshiping me with fellow believers. Remember when your heart was so full of joy and praise rolled off your lips. Remember when you were touched by the reading of Scripture and biblical preaching. Remember when you would go to the altar to confess your sin. Remember when you were moved to pray for the lost because they are as you once were. Remember when you arranged your schedule around Sunday school and worship and Wednesday night services instead of attending only when it's convenient on your social calendar. Remember, remember how you couldn't do enough for me you taught Sunday school, and you served on committees, and you were always willing to volunteer. Remember how you used to be so generous in giving to me? Not just a tie, but you gave way above, and you helped others outside the church and never wanted anything in return. Remember. Remember. Remember when no person or thing came before me. And Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, now it seems that most everything comes between us and before me. What should you do? What should I do now? You need to remember. You need to remember how you used to love Jesus. How you used to be passionate about serving Him and not just doing it to fulfill a duty. You meant to remember 
how that fire used to burn in your belly. And then he says a second word. He says, repent. And love me like you loved me at first. Uh, If things are to be like they were in our relationship, Jesus is saying, you've got to change because it's this way. I never change. Jesus says, I never change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if anybody's moved in our relationship, if anybody's lost their love, it's not me losing my love for you, but you've lost your love for me. That's what Jesus is saying. The Lord never stopped loving you, but you stopped loving Him. But you can't repent until you realize there's a problem. You know, you, you can never help anybody who has a problem until they first recognize they have a problem and then they can ask you for help. I mean, a lot of people want to want you to fix everything for them, but I mean, really, in order to help them, they've got to first realize they've got a problem. I mean, whether it's an addiction, I mean, you go through all the, all the different things, but they've got to realize they have a problem. And listen, you will never repent unless you realize you should repent. You have to see your haughtiness in view of His holiness. Now, I know that's a big old word, haughtiness. I don't think I've used it over five times in a sentence this week. Haughtiness. But it means conceited. And it means prideful. And and, and so we have to see ourselves as we are because I really think the church at Ephesus is quite proud of themselves and all of their accomplishments. And here, Jesus comes and lowers the boom and said, you've lost your first love. You've got to see it. How do we see it? Well, we mirror ourselves against God. Don't be mirroring yourself against the person in the pew in front of you. Don't be mirroring yourself against the person all the way over on the other side of the church. Don't be mirroring yourself against your neighbor down the road. Don't be mirroring yourself against the church up yonder. You mirror yourself against God. And like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, and he went into the temple to worship. And there he had the vision of God. And in that vision of God, he says, uh, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. How did he recognize that? Because he saw himself in light of who God was. And God was holy, holy, holy. And so in order for us to repent, we've got to see ourselves as God sees us. We've got to see ourselves mirrored in the holiness of God. And that will reflect upon us, our sinful condition, and our pride. It is our pride and our self-will that is at the root of our rebellion against God and why we've lost our first love. We try to impress people with appearance, affluence, and accomplishments. We uh, uh, over-assess our spirituality and our power by basing it on our deeds. We consume the world and neglect hunger and thirst for holiness. We assess our life and our church is more spiritually empowered than it actually is. This is what happens when we measure ourselves against ourselves. But I'm saying look at God. Look at the holiness of God. If we don't, we continue in our spiritual complacency and we try to deny it because we don't want to do what it takes to change. You know repentance 
is hard. Because repentance says, I'm wrong and God is right. And repentance says, I have to be broken in order to be made whole by Him. Paul said, shall we continue playing the grace card? And that's what a lot of us are doing. And a lot of churches are doing it. They're playing the grace card. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, God forbid. As a believer, our whole life's purpose is to passionately love God. Now, you didn't have intentions of leaving your first love. I don't believe divorce in marriages happens overnight. There is progressiveness there. There is progressiveness there. It can be lack of communication in a, in a marriage. It can be problems over finances. Those are the top two that usually lead to divorce. But basically it is just, it is just letting things go and not addressing the problem. And, and as you let it go and don't address the problem pretty soon, then it comes to the point that you can no longer feel that you can stay together. Nobody thinks about leaving Jesus. Nobody thinks about losing their love for Jesus. When we get saved, we're so excited about Jesus, we go home, we tell the dog and the cat and every neighbor that Jesus saved us. We're so happy in the Lord. Where's that fire at now? Is that same fire in your belly now that you had then? What happened? What happened? We, we get accustomed to the world, we get accustomed to the to the dark of the world, as Miss McCamey used to used to sing of the McCamey family. She said, "You know, we're getting used to the dark, and you know, at at, at nighttime falls, and and you don't have a light on. Pretty soon, your eyes kind of adjust. You can't see as well as you can in daylight, but your eyes adjust to where you can kind of see, and that's where many churches are today. We can kind of see, but we're not in the light of Christ." We've got used to the dark. We've got used to the way that it's always been. And we feel like that that's the way that it's always got to be. But Jesus says that's not true. He says you can remember and you can repent. And you can have that first love back in your life. Many folks love for Jesus as flat as an open week old two liter. You'll get that after a while. No one backslides overnight. But we get used to the dark. George Gallup did a survey, 13,000 people in 130 countries. It's the only time such a survey has ever been done worldwide. And it was a survey of people and why they used to go to church, but they no longer go. One of that questions was asked, what would need to happen for you to return to church? And the answer was, passion in the lives of the members and the leaders. Passion in the lives of the members and the leaders. People wanted to see zeal. Now here's what I want to ask. I wanted to ask those who quit going to church, why did you lose your passion? See, you, you ought to have a passion, yes, and that helps to feed the passion of others, and they can feed off of that passion because love is contagious. But at the same time, don't leave the church and blame it on the passion of those who are, are a lack of and those who are in the church. You need to stir up your own passion and be a leader for those who are in the church with you. Can I get an amen on that? I thought that was a pretty good statement right there. God did too. 
A person or a church that loses their passion for Jesus is unhealthy and, and dying because the church is an organism, not an organization. The church is a body and it's not a business. It is living, but if it's not growing, it's dying. So what happens if I don't repent? Here's the last question. What happens if I don't repent? And Jesus said, I'm going to come and remove the lampstand. Now the lampstand was a, a symbol of spiritual light. In other words, the lampstand was the influence of that church for the Lord in that particular city or in that particular community. If you don't repent, I'm going to come and take away your influence. Let me tell you where Ephesus is at today. It's not. There is no Ephesian church today. There is actually no city of Ephesus today, except on, you might find it if you was on an archaeological dig, you might find some remains there. But this church is in what is called present-day Turkey. And did you know that present-day Turkey is 99.8% Muslim? That means that only 0.2% of the people in Turkey are Christians. And even that 0.2% is in rapid decline. Here was a huge bastion of Christianity in the first century. And now that influence is gone, that church is gone, the lamp is gone, the light is gone, and it's darker in Turkey than it's ever been since Jesus Christ was crucified. I often wonder what would happen if, if the people at Ephesus had repented and returned to God. I think there's a lesson to be learned there. I think we can see that lesson in the American church, and maybe we can even make some application in our own church. I'm going to let you make that application to Panther Creek Baptist Church yourself. I'm going to let you make that application. But I know what I've seen in Europe, and I've seen it, what has happened in Europe in the last 50 to 60 years. Huge Christian cathedrals that were one time filled with the preaching of Moody and others. Those churches are now empty. And if they're not empty, the Muslims are using it as their worship centers. You know that we are seeing that today in America that Muslims are occupying church buildings that once Baptist and Methodist and so forth and so on had as their places of worship. There was a time when we were reaching the world for Christ in the United States, and now more missionaries are coming out of Asia than we are, than we are sending from the United States of America. 80% of the churches in North America are plateaued or declining. Ten churches per day in North America are closing. You say, well, preacher, it looks mighty hopeless. Why does it look hopeless? Because I have a God of all possibilities. And nothing is impossible with God. And as we as believers see what is happening to the church, we must also see why it is happening. And it is happening because of us. It hasn't. It's not happening because of God, because God hasn't changed. The change that has to take place has to take place in us. We are really at a crossroads, but it's not too late to turn the tide. We must heed the warning of the church at Ephesus.
Because that's what will happen to us if we do not repent and turn to our first love. So let's bring it home. What are we going to do about it? Anybody can show a problem. Anybody can reveal a problem. What are you going to do about a problem? Will you either address it or you ignore it? And so the problem that may come in your life and my life is if God has said to me personally, you don't love me like you used to, I have to deal with that personally. And I have to repent of my sin of of falling away from God in that old term we used to use years ago, backsliding, and I have to come back to God. And that's what Pharaoh has to do. But what do you have to do? And perhaps what does the church as a whole have to do in order to be where God wants you to be? You know, we, have, we spend a lot of time today in trying to to mature the church and grow the church and help the church to see where it's at. And, and, and while we're spending time on trying to grow the church, we have lost people dying and going to hell. And it gets pretty difficult in church to balance that. I really think we ought to be spending more time in evangelizing than we are in church building, as far as building the body. But we can't evangelize if the church is not healthy. You can't go out if you're unhealthy. So the church has to get healthy, and then we can evangelize. What are you going to do with Jesus today? John, come on, we're going to sing and uh, have our closing song here. So what are you going to do about this today? What, what are you going to do personally about it? If you don't have a fire in your belly for Jesus, if you've lost your passion for Jesus, Jesus says There's, here's, here's, your, here's what you've got to do. I mean, there ain't no question of what you got to do. It's plain in the Bible. He says you got to remember. Remember that how you used to love me. And then repent and love me again like that. And that, I mean, that's just as simple as it can be. And that's what he says to do. And if you need to do that, I hope you'll do it this morning. Hope you'll do it right now. And if you've never been saved, you've never asked Jesus into your heart, let me say to this, there's a lot of Christians that their lives don't demonstrate true passion for Jesus. And I would just ask you as a lost person to please try to forgive those who are not living for Jesus, even though you don't even know what forgiveness is yet. But if you'll trust Christ with your life, He will forgive you of your sin, and He'll put a fire in your belly. And I pray that that's what you'll do today as a lost person.